0: Please turn to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3. Our study today is really going to come out of Titus chapter 3 verse 8 in particular, but I want us today to read Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 as well to get the context. We actually looked at this scripture last week, but let's read it together. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Verse four, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then from there, Paul goes on in verse eight to say, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Let's pray. Well, Father, Your church is gathered, Father, we gather uh, expecting to hear from you, and God, we thank you, God, that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've separated your word from what is not your word, God, and given us uh, our Bibles, given us the canon of Scripture, God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. And today, Father, as we open up this book you have given us, God, I pray, God, God, bless our time as we read. Father, let us, to be, let us be slow to speak and quick to hear. And God, let us be doers of the word, Father. Let us not deceive ourselves, Father, as we come week after week, God, opening up your holy scriptures, Father, Let us not deceive ourselves, but let us be doers of your word. God, please bless. Send your spirit to open up eyes, to open up ears. Bless my mouth, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, our study today, as I said, is gonna be here primarily out of Titus chapter three, verse eight, but as we read, and as Paul begins this section here in Titus chapter three, Paul, what he did was he really expounded quite well, I would say, upon all the glorious gospel truths that have saved us. That's what we looked at in, in verses three through seven, all of the glorious truths of the gospel that have in fact saved us. And then from there, what Paul does in verse eight is he turns to Titus, this newly appointed elder in the church, and he exhorts him To put these truths of God's grace into action in his church. And Paul begins doing this in verse 8 by saying, this is a trustworthy statement. This is a trustworthy statement. And what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is everything that we looked at last week in verses 3 through 7. He was talking about our, our previous state of foolishness in disobedience and rebellion to God. And he followed it up by this, this gracious intervention of Christ's coming into this world to save us and to justify us through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit in all of this saving work of God, being based solely on his mercy. This is the trustworthy statement. And because because of this statement, because of this trustworthy statement or this truth, this truth which is God's gospel, this is the very pinnacle of all of God's interaction with mankind. This is the very message of God's self-glorification through his extension of mercy and the displaying of his mercy. Because this trustworthy statement is really the weightiest and most significant and important message that you could ever hear Because of these things, Paul goes on to tell Titus, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. I want you to speak confidently. Paul follows uh, this same pattern as he goes on to speak about, he wants Titus to, uh, to encourage his church to follow up these gospel truths with good works. Paul often follows this pattern in his letters He often starts off his letters by explaining and expounding upon all the mysteries of the gospel and everything which God has done for us through Christ. He often starts this way. And then Paul quite often turns to the churches and therefore, and says, therefore, because of what Christ has done, you now, for instance, in Romans 12 present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Or Ephesians 4, for instance, Paul, after following up all the indicatives about everything that Jesus had done, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So for the apostle Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all these miraculous workings of the triune God to save man, none of these are topics for intellectual assent merely they're not topics simply for discussion or debate the gospel is a truth that is to be preached boldly confidently even in the church and for a purpose and for a purpose and the purpose the reason that paul gives to titus here in our text for why he's to be proclaiming all of these realities of god's grace to his church is is seen in this purpose clause as they call it at the end of verse eight. He says, to speak of the gospel confidently so that, there's a purpose, speak of the the gospel confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. He says, these things are good and profitable for men. So we see here the working of God's grace does not end at someone being converted. The message of the gospel and the message of Christ is not simply a message of getting your ticket punched so that you can go to heaven and then go about living your life however you choose to do. The grace of God is much more intrusive in the life of his people than that. As the Spirit of God invades one life at regeneration, the Spirit of God is simply beginning a work. It's simply beginning a work that will continue throughout that, life's, throughout that person's life. Last week, we focused our attention on the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, this beginning point, this, this work of the Spirit by which a dead sinner is graciously given new spiritual life. And today, I want us to look further into what Paul Is exhorting Titus to do here in verse 8 and to see exactly how is it that regeneration is merely the beginning it's it's merely the beginning the regenerating work and and presence of the Holy Spirit inside a person causes many changes in the life of that man or a woman changes that will lead to everything that Paul is exhorting Titus about here all the way to a life of good works And so my title for the message today is is this, it's The Fruit of Regeneration. The Fruit of Regeneration. We'll start at the beginning, we're going to look at three major results or fruit of God's regenerating one's soul. The first fruit we'll look at is conversion itself, the fruit of repentance and faith as God regenerates regenerates someone's soul. Second, and it kind of comes out of the first, we're going to look at justification. Justification, I want to look at this because we only touched on it last week uh, for but a moment as verse 7 mentioned it, Uh, but I want us to to look longer at this uh, important point in your life, this important point, this point in time in your life when God actually declared you to be righteous in his sight. It's It's all important. And then lastly, we're gonna look about how regeneration actually brings about these things that Paul is demanding from the church, good works, godliness. We're gonna look into sanctification, being a fruit of your regeneration. So, as we begin to dive into here, the fruit of regeneration, we're gonna begin with repentance and faith. I thought it might be easiest to kind of see this played out Uh, with a very practical example that we have in Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Here we see this, this work of God's Spirit um, changing and working in the heart, in the heart of someone. This someone here is a woman actually that Paul and Timothy and Luke come across as they're in the city of Philippi. They're in the middle of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey and as Paul and Timothy and Luke are are spreading the gospel together, uh, let's pick up with them in verse 13 here of Acts chapter 16. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled and a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. Now, just let me add a note there. When it says she's a worshiper of God, it's denoting her as, as what the book of Acts um, always denotes, um, this type of person. They're God-fearers. Um, this doesn't necessarily denote that she's actually worshiping God in spirit and truth. god um, Godfear was a designation for any Gentile who practiced Judaism. So that's what the designation is being given of for this woman here. Um, she's a God-fearer. She's a, a a Gentile who practices Judaism. And so, as uh, as Paul was speaking to her, to her, it says she was listening. And here it is. It says that the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. The Lord opened up her heart. And in this we see a couple of things. First, a point I made last week, that regeneration does not occur randomly, it's always through the preaching of the word and so it is here with Lydia. Her heart is open to accept the gospel and all this is through the preaching of Paul's gospel. Second, the working of the spirit here and the regeneration in her heart, what does it do? It causes her to respond to the things that Paul is speaking to her. And what's her response? Well, uh, repentance and faith is what we're going to talk about. Although it's not explicitly mentioned here, we know that she exercised faith in Jesus Christ because what did Paul do with her? The, the verse goes on to say that she was baptized. She was baptized. So we see that the Spirit of God did this work in her heart that brought about this conversion uh, that the apostle Paul attested to and baptized her uh, as a result of, and so that's just a very practical example to see of how this how this happens through the preaching of the word, how somebody's heart is changed and opened up to respond to the gospel. Um, and as I said, the two words here that aren't mentioned that we're going to look at are repentance and faith. Repentance, repentance and faith are the two words which are most often used to describe what a true. Genuine spirit wrought conversion looks like um, in the Bible, repentance and faith. Sometimes the scriptures uh, simply refer to uh, conversion and, and use the word faith or belief. Sometimes the scriptures only use the word repentance, and sometimes both words are used to describe. Uh, but both terms are very essential elements of what a true conversion really is. Um, It's been helpfully said that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, that coin being a real conversion, repentance and faith. So as you read through your Bible and you see texts that simply only refer to faith being present, that that faith is obviously implying a repentance. And when you see texts that are only mentioning repentance, you can um, safely know that faith is there as well. Um, so let's start with repentance repentance the word repentance in greek is metanoia uh, which quite simply and very literally means a change of mind that simple definition is fine if one gives it a full biblical context and a full biblical reference for exactly what one is changing their mind about when they repent because a biblical change of mind Biblical repentance is a change of mind and even a change of the will about what one used to think, about what one used to love, about what one used to be wanting to do with his life and a willingness to forsake it all and to turn and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. In short, repentance is a turning of the will from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Let's look now at repentance to see um, more along the point of what I wanted to get at here in this sermon is how is repentance a fruit of regeneration? Uh, Turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. um, Here we see that repentance is surely the work of God. Repentance is surely the work of God's Spirit at our conversions here Paul's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, it says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So what must happen here for these opponents to escape the very snare of the devil that they're entrapped in? Well, God must sovereignly grant them repentance. We see how repentance here is the work of God. The word grant is simply the word to give. God must give repentance. And so as the Spirit of God comes in, it grants freedom. The Spirit of God grants freedom from the slavery to sin, which then allows one to turn to Jesus Christ by faith. As I said, the other side of the coin is faith. To turn from sin, you turn from sin to Jesus by faith. And yes, even your faith is a gift of God. It's a gift that comes through the washing of regeneration. Let's see this now in John chapter one. John chapter one. Here John very explicitly teaches that our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ is based on the work of God and regeneration. Turn to John chapter one verses, we'll read 12 and 13 together. John says here, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. So here we see uh, the mention in the presence of faith, belief in Jesus Christ, um, even for those who believed in his name. It's, the belief is there, but what I want us to notice here as we go on to verse 13 is why does this person believe? Why do they believe? John's going to tell us, he's going to tell us it's because they've been born again, Verse 13 says, who were born, speaking of those who believed, who were born, it's not speaking of their natural birth, of course, it's speaking of the spiritual birth. These were born, born again, not of blood, meaning they were not born again because of their family line or because of their ancestry, nor were they born again because of the will of the flesh. They weren't born because of anything they've done in their flesh. No works have attributed to their being born again. And then John says even here, nor were they born of the will of man. It wasn't the execution of their free will over and against those who don't believe in Jesus that caused them to be born again. But what was it? It was of God. It was of God. So these believe, these believe because they were born again because of what God has done, God has given them this birth. All the, all the credit for regeneration and being born again goes to God, not to man. And so I thought it might be helpful not to get too far off topic, um, but just to take note of where this is being taught in the Gospel of John. Because I know there's, there's much debate going on about the sovereignty of God and salvation versus man's free will and, and, and that being, uh, how somebody is able to come to Christ and believe and not. But notice, just take notice in the gospel of John where this is being worked out for you. In the very first verses of the gospel of John, this is being worked out. John's telling you that your belief is not attributed to your works. It's not attributed to your will. You're born again because of God. This was just helpful to remember where John taught that. So when you get to all these other verses later on in the Gospel of John, where people are seeing people believe and therefore assuming this free will reaction, um, John's already taught us why it is that people go on to believe. It's because they've been born of God. It's been born of God. So, so we see here that both our repentance and our faith are gifts of God given to us through regeneration They're gifts of God's spirit that are given to us at our conversions. The second fruit that we're going to look at now of regeneration is that of justification. Justification. We only got to touch on it momentarily last week. Um, I know as back in Titus 3.7, Paul said, we've been justified by grace. We've been justified by grace. I want to touch on this again because of the, the overall weight and significance of with which Paul and the Bible as a whole give to the doctrine of justification. Um, it's, it's that important and I wanna look at it more fully today. And so when I speak of the importance that scripture gives to the doctrine of justification, it, it really can't be overemphasized. Um, when you read Paul especially, understanding justification is in fact a dividing line between actually understanding the gospel or not understanding the gospel. And because it's a, a dividing line between understanding the gospel or not, it's also a dividing line between whether you have in fact been saved by God or not. Justification. And so I put myself a note here to, to make sure that I explain that there's, so there's no confusion. What I'm not saying is that if you don't know what the word justification means, you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying at all, but when you look at the the teaching of Scripture, and when this word is used, it's used always in the context, uh, or, or not always in the context of salvation, but as we're looking at it here, when the justification is used in the context of salvation, it's a gospel issue. And so it's something you must understand, uh, how justification fits into you being saved. Um, for example, the word justification is used many times, nearly synonymously with salvation with being saved. So what I'm saying is is, is you must understand um, salvation. You must understand how to be saved and therefore how to be justified. If you don't know how to be saved, you are indeed in a very dangerous place. Um, And in case there's any question concerning uh, the response that God requires of you in order to be saved, we actually just spent the last Eight to ten minutes looking at it, it was repentance and faith. You're justified by repentance and faith. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you can know for sure that your sins have indeed been forgiven. Now, does that sound paradoxical, considering everything we've just been looking about, about how repentance and faith are gifts of God? but yet that's what we're to tell people they must do to be saved, is that they must repent and, and believe, and, and especially for us, knowing that the Bible says that they cannot repent and believe apart from the grace of God, is that some kind of strange paradox? Well, what it comes down to is the fact that um, every man is responsible to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and man's inability, our inability to do that is not something that God takes accountability for. Our fallenness and our sin, we are held accountable for. And so because we are in this state of, of inability and, and misery and um, folly and sin, uh, that doesn't in and of itself require God to give this grace to everyone, but gr- God graciously does. And it's still, whether he gives you the ability or not, it's still your responsibility to repent and believe and so as I don't leave any open door for debate about that when I'm talking to people or, or if the issue of the sovereignty of God comes into play with that because um, at the end of the day, it's man's responsibility to repent and believe. It's man who sinned, and they must repent and believe to be saved. So let's go on here to justification. Let me, let me give you a, a very usable, I hope, definition of justification before I just continue to say the word without clarity. Justification is the point in time when God makes a legal declaration about you. It's when God makes a declaration about you that you are no longer guilty of sin and you are actually declared to be righteous by God in His sight. That's justification. It's a point in time in your life when God says you are no longer guilty and you are actually righteous in my sight. That's the position, that's the place where you must be. You must be in that place of having been justified by God. So let me show you here a a helpful text, I think, uh, to just confirm in your minds this meaning of justification so that as you come across it in the scriptures, you know what you're dealing with and what Paul means. As he uses the word justification in the context of the gospel and salvation. Turn to Romans chapter 8 to see this. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 33 in particular. Here, of course, in Romans chapter 8, as, as many of us well know, we're, we're most assuredly in the context of justification being used in the sense of sal- salvific uh, context. Romans 8, 33. The word justification is, as anybody who's gone through and studied the book of James or, or dealt with the way that James uses the word justification, there are other ways and different contexts in which justification is used, as is most words. Uh, but Romans 8.33 30, here uh, really helps us to flesh out the meaning of this word justification. Paul says this in verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? god is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns right we'll stop right there just because it's already made the point notice the contrast in the meanings here there are those maybe one in particular it's maybe referencing there there's there's those who will try to condemn us meaning declare us guilty of sin There's those who will try to declare us guilty of sin, but God, God, on the other hand, justifies us. That's the contrast. God declares us not guilty and righteous. And so there's one that will declare us guilty. God, just the opposite, in contrast, justifies us, declares us not guilty and righteous. So Romans 8.33, I think, makes that point clear on what exactly uh, means by justification what is God doing he's he's declaring us to be righteous now as I said this this blessed declaration is made by God about you at the moment that you come to the Savior this declaration is made and is able to be made because something else has actually happened when you believe by which God can now rightfully say that you are righteous because especially at your conversion, you realize that you are not. So, how is it here? What else happens whereby God can declare you to be righteous? There's a, a transaction which takes place. This is how God's able to declare you righteous, this is how He's able to justify you. A transaction occurs which makes it right and good and just for God to declare a sinner righteous. And it's the greatest transaction that you can be involved with. It's a better transaction than if somebody was to uh, make a a bank transaction and and put $10 million right now into your account. This transaction's better. So much so, a lot of the theologians have have come to call this transaction the great exchange. The great exchange. There's several passages in the scriptures that that speak directly to this. Um, Brother Shaw actually uh, quoted one in second Corinthians, Maybe let me read to you um, Romans chapter five first, and then we 'll turn together to Second Corinthians. If you want to go ahead and head that way that 's fine. But Romans chapter five verse 19 says, For as through the one man 's disobedience, speaking of Adam, through one man 's disobedience, the many were made sinners' Even so, through the obedience of the one, now speaking of Christ, through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's obedience, that's whose obedience it is, Christ's obedience is given to us. And thereby we're declared and made righteous. That's a little primer, maybe, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, because I think here we see a couple more aspects to this great transaction. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. So what's, what's going on here in this, in this uh, transfer in this transaction. um, There's maybe another theological term that you might wanna add to your repertoire. Uh, The theological term is that of imputation. Imputation, that that word just simply means there's a giving or there's an attributing of something else to someone else. It's just a giving of something to someone else. The theologians call it imputation. So here in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul's describing this great exchange which occurs between us and Christ Jesus through imputation. There's things being swapped, there's things being given and attributed to someone else. He started off by saying here, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, meaning God imputed, or God gave, or God put our sin. To Christ, so that He could be punished in our behalf. Our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ so that He could be punished on our behalf. But the good news is, and I pray that as you think about this, you will include this aspect of imputation and of this great exchange more often because the verse doesn't stop there with our sins being dealt with by Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We become the righteousness of God in him. This is the greatest part, I think, of the great exchange. The righteousness of God is then imputed to us. It is. It's unbelievable. The perfect righteousness which Jesus obtained during his... His perfect holy existence of perfect law keeping, all of his perfect pleasing of the Father and everything he said, thought, and did, all of that is credited, it's imputed, it's given to you, and it's put into your account. And it's because of this great exchange, it's because your sins were in fact dealt with by Jesus Christ, and at your conversion, you're given the righteousness of Christ, it's because of this that God, the righteous judge of all, declares us to now be just. He justifies us, justifies us. So while we're on the topic of justification, remember what Paul taught us in Titus chapter three, verse five, remember from last week, he said that, that we have not been saved by Jesus, we have not been justified in other words, by deeds done in righteousness. We've not been saved. You've not been declared righteous because you have been righteous. But in fact, we've been saved by the grace of God through regeneration. And this is why Paul goes on in Titus 3:7 to say you've been justified by grace. Justified by grace. This is justification by grace is what needs to be fully settled in your mind. From now to the rest of your life, justification by grace. Because justification or salvation in a broader sense is by grace apart from works. This is the gospel of God. This is the gospel that gives God all of the glory and all of the credit for your salvation. And the gospel of God's grace, because it is God's gospel, his opponents are constantly undermining this glorious good news. Those who oppose God constantly attack this gospel. The gospel of justification by grace through faith is, is being attacked even today in many different ways. Um, there are some who teach unashamedly that man is not justified by faith alone, that man is justified by faith plus works. Um, there are some who more subtly attempt Uh, to teach this, and and they try to work in their their good works and their righteousness, maybe not to get you saved, but to maintain your salvation, many teach. And because because the apostle Paul was uh, constantly fighting this battle over justification, as as Paul was spreading the gospel all through the book of Acts to, to all of the known world, Um, This is the battle that we see the Apostle Paul fighting for justification. He's fighting in all these different places. And so we see the evidence of this battle in all of these letters that he wrote. Um, Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5 to see one of the clearest examples of this battle for justification by faith alone in the book of Galatians, Um, especially in the book of Galatians, what Um, some think is actually the earliest New Testament book written. It may have been the book of James, but Galatians is very, very early. And from the very beginning of the Christian faith, uh, we see that the apostle Paul does not compromise on justification, and so therefore neither should we. We can never compromise this teaching, uh, because as we'll see, to compromise justification by faith is to compromise your actual salvation. So if you're there in Galatians 5, what the context of this is here. As I said, Paul's been going around preaching the gospel, and in these Galatian churches that he had already established, there were some rising up in the churches that Paul established, teaching that faith in Jesus Christ is, is yes, very good, but it's not enough. You need, to add, you need to add one good, righteous deed to your faith, and then God will justify you. And that good deed was that of circumcision. They were saying you must be circumcised uh, as well to be saved. So let's read Galatians 5, 2 through 4. It says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is now under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You have fallen for grace. I read verse four as well because it helps give us this qualifier, a necessary qualifier here because what Paul's not saying is for these people to be uh, wanting to do good deeds and do the right thing and follow God's law. He's not saying that is wrong. But in, in verse four, he clarified saying that They were seeking to be justified by their good works. There's nothing wrong with good works, but that's why I said this was what must be clarified in your mind that if you're seeking justification, if you're seeking your salvation by and through your works, um, you're in this condemnation that the Apostle Paul gives right here. It's a place you do not want to be. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is all of grace. And so I pray that you would never be I'm dragged into um, any system or teaching that attempts to add a single, even one single work to justification by faith alone. We must guard this because it it gives glory to God. So now having established that we're saved through the work of God and by his grace alone and all of these things are, are works of God's regenerating work in us, Now I want us to really move in more directly uh, to the point here that I want to get at is this exhortation that Paul gives to Titus in verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Let me read it one more time just to remind us of where we're going here. It says, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, and so really, just so you know, so I'm being up front. Pretty much everything we went through was really preparation for this exhortation here, um, because what as we move into this exhortation to uh, produce good deeds and to and to do these things, I didn't want there to be any um, confusion as to the role that your good works and your good deeds play in your salvation. I don't want there to be any confusion in that. Um, So what is the role that our our good works and deeds play in all of this discussion that Paul has been giving to Titus here about salvation? Well, our good works, our godliness, our holiness, all of these things are also the fruit of our regeneration. Regeneration. They're another fruit of our regeneration, fruit a fruit that does not get you saved. But if you are saved, it's a fruit that most certainly must be there. The Spirit of God brings about our conversion and we're justified, we're declared righteous. But as I said at the beginning, the Spirit of God does not stop there. The Spirit of God continues to work in us uh, from that point forward. And I think what happens is as glorious as our conversions are as glorious as the doctrine of justification is. I'm afraid there's an aspect of God's regenerating work that is often underappreciated and, and really less desired, less, le- less sought after. And that's this fruit here. That's the gift of sanctification. And so the word sanctification, in short, can be defined as this process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That's sanctification, you becoming more like the Savior. This process that the Spirit works in a believer to conform you into the image of Christ has a definite beginning. I want to first look at this definite beginning. It's it's referred to as your definitive sanctification. It's the point of your sanctification when all this begins. It's, It's really the point in time when you are are once for all set apart you, you you get this break from sin so that you can begin the lifelong lifelong work of growth in Christ um, let's see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 if you'll turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 here we see this aspect of our sanctification we see how it begins 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll read actually through verse 11, just for context's sake, and there's things that Paul says here that um, these days uh, don't seem to be said enough, so I'll just read it. It'll help be helpful for us with our context as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's quite a list there, ironically that's the list that the Lord used to to break me. I love this verse. But look what he goes on to say in, such, in verse 11. He says, such were some of you. Now we're getting into the work of God here. Such were some of you, but you were washed, he says. You were washed. Remember that word from Titus, the washing of regeneration. You were washed, but you were sanctified. You were sanctified. That's, that's our word. He goes on to say, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So at your conversion, you were washed through regeneration. He says here, you were justified as well. You were declared righteous by God and you were sanctified. You were set apart. You were given this Romans 6 description of this break with sin, this death to sin that you now have, this, this this newfound ability to start putting off sin because the Spirit of God himself is in you. That's where this ability comes from. So 1 Corinthians 11 shows us this this first initial break, this first initial part of our sanctification, this this once-for-all separation from the slavery to sin. Now I want us to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter two, we're gonna see uh, more of the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives, the ongoing, what the theologians call the progressive sanctification. Let's look at this because in Philippians two, verse 12 and 13, Paul's not so much speaking of this initial setting apart of you at your salvation, but he's more or less speaking of this ongoing Christian life and battle of putting off sin. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." So here, this is, this is a good text because, as I said, our, our sanctification is, in fact, a fruit of our regeneration. Paul here says that it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But notice that even though God is at work, and that's the word that he uses, God is at work in you, notice the word that Paul uses for your responsibility, and it's the exact same word, work. Work out this salvation that you already have. So again, this working out of your salvation is not to gain salvation. You're working out a salvation you already have. But the word work tells me right up front that something we all know, but sanctification is not an easy job. There's nothing easy about it. It's actually the hardest battle you could possibly engage in, but it's a necessary battle. It's part of the actual war that we're involved with and it's part of the gospel call Christ called us to take up our crosses daily to die to yourself daily and so again the, even the salvation call is not just a get your ticket punched um, type of offer for heaven the gospel call is one yes of forgiveness of sins justification but it's also a call to put yourself underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And until we have these bodies that we have now changed into incorruptibility, that battle will continue and it will be hard until the day you die. But take courage, because that's what Paul, That's why Paul says what he says here in Philippians 2.12. All this explanation about God being the one in you to work and to will for his good pleasure That should bring encouragement. So as you do your part, as you work out your salvation, you're leaning and you're trusting on God who is at work in you, God who can do anything effortlessly. That's who you should be leaning on as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's Spirit, since your very regeneration, has been in you working to mold you and to conform you into the image of Christ. Now, yesterday morning in the Men's Fellowship, we were uh, actually studying the book of Proverbs. And as we were discussing the book of Proverbs and looking at it, we were, we were talking about how the book of Proverbs is such a, it's so helpful because it's so practical. And, and basically what the book of Proverbs is, it's an experience expanding upon, it's an expounding upon uh, the law that was given previously. It's an expounding because we get so many real life examples and situations given to us in the Proverbs about how we can actually work out God's law, how we can react to certain situations and what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. Uh, the Proverbs are, are so helpful in that way. And so in the same way, uh, rather just, than just leave you with just a very general exhortation to go and be godly, um, I thought what we would do uh, was turn to one last place. Um, You can finally rest your fingers. I know we've been turning to many places already. We'll we'll go to one more place. Um, Go back to Titus chapter 2 verse 1. I thought we would look here. Um, Lastly, just to get some, what I think are necessary sometimes, some very specific directions, like the book of Proverbs gives on God's law, some very specific directions on how we can display the fruits of our regeneration. Because that's what Paul's calling Titus to tell his church to do, and so I'm doing the same thing with our church. So I want us to take upon these same exhortations, these same directions that Paul gave to Titus' church. Um, in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. And so let's look at these. He begins with an actual exhortation to Titus, the elder. He says, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, Tell your church, Titus, how to behave in accordance with this glorious and gracious great salvation that you and your church have been given. That's the instruction that Titus gets first. And this is the message that he's to relate to his church. He says in verse 2, speaking to the older men first. He says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that Paul begins with the older men here. I think it's very appropriate. Uh, Because as you look at Paul's description of the role and the job of the older men in the church, as you see their Christian walk and duty, the older men are to be the examples. Paul here tells them to be like a rock, be steady, be grounded in the faith, be models of perseverance for the church. Paul goes on in verse 3 to address the older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. And for the younger women, I would just say, start looking uh, to these examples as well. This should be your goal because, Lord willing, one day you will become older women. Paul says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. They're not to be malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. And so just looking only at the older women's responsibilities here, uh, the older women are likewise to be examples to the rest. Paul puts first and foremost in this call for the older women to be reverent in their behavior. reverent in their behavior. They should be honorable. They should have reverence for God and reverence for the brethren and therefore should not be gossips they should not be gossips but they should instead use their tongue for good and he even gives them the call of what to do what good to do with their tongues he says the older women are to be teaching the younger women and they're to be directing their teachings like this it says the younger women are to love their husbands to love their children to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And notice this, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And why would the word of God be dishonored if a woman in Titus' church does not fulfill their role of, of being subject to their husbands? Well, the answer is because the very gospel itself is a picture of submission and self-sacrifice. The very Son of God submitted willingly to His Father a submission which cost Him everything, which cost Him the very bloody death on a cross. Submission to the Father cost Jesus Christ uh, the imputation of our sin to Him. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is all about submission as Jesus showed us by his example. Just as the Son has a role to fill in our redemption, so too wives have a role to fill in their marriages. Marriages is to be a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ and his church, and we are all under submission. Just as Christ is in submission to the Father, men, we are to be in submission to Christ. And in the same way, women are to be into submission to their husbands. I know that the world laughs at this. I know. But I can assure you that your submission to your husbands is pleasing and glorifying to the Lord. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. So count it a privilege. Count it a privilege to do this work that glorifies the Lord. And and do what Christ did. Look to your Reward and glory in heaven. Look forward to that day when the Lord will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul goes on to address a couple more groups in the church. Verse six, he says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. So that, again, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's quite the call for the young men. And what an opportunity, I think, as Paul describes us here, to, to exercise your zeal. You have the opportunity to put the enemies of the gospel to shame not allowing them to have any grounds to say something bad about us. So how are young men to serve this purpose which God has for you? He says by being sensible and by being an example of being busy with good deeds as opposed to to wasting all the freedom that you may have on frivolous things. Be busy about good deeds. Young men, you likewise are called to be dignified just as the older men were. But here, the Apostle Paul adds an extra reminder for you. He says, you young men are to have speech, which is beyond reproach. Speech, which is beyond reproach, because there are fires that are set ablaze by one uncensored statement. The destruction and the division that can come from one word that should not have been said can destroy lives, the book of James says. And so watch your mouths. And young brothers, let them have nothing bad to say about us. Lastly, Paul gives a call to submission, which encompasses all of us who work. All of us who work. Verse 9, he said, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, Not pilfering, not stealing, he means, but showing all good faith. And here's the point of it all. Right here in verse 10, he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So brothers and sisters, let us do the same. Let us adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, This grace which brought about our regeneration in our new birth. This regeneration that we looked at today that that produces these fruits in our lives, our very conversions, the gifts of repentance and faith. This God given conversion that brings about our justification. The fact that God Himself, the judge of all, says that we are righteous. Adorn that teaching. And the, the fact that the Spirit of God has not stopped there, but he also continues working in, in our sanctification. Adorn the fact that the Spirit of God is in you. Adorn the fact that he's in you, giving you desires and abilities to become more and more and more like the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is really the message that we have for the world. Forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Real peace with God. And, I would add, the promise that God's spirit will be inside of you, working in you to make you actually pleasing to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, God, we need the ability to do the things that we just heard, God. Just as the text says, Father, these things are gifts of your grace. And so, Father, I pray now, And ask you, the giver of these gifts. God, we need you, God, to give us these graces. Father, our lives are hard. The, The battle against sin seems long. Father, even though your word says this life will pass away, God, so quickly. Father, it seems long to us, Father. So bear with us, Father. Be faithful as you say you will be, as we know you will be, God. We Wait on you God we look to you we pray to you Father we act for your mercy we ask for your mercy God on us God make this church more and more Christ like God help us to encourage each other to good deeds let our church work as Ephesians 4 says the church is to work that we will all play our part God let us be a praying church father When it gets hard, God, draw us to yourself. Father, God, we look to you. We thank you for this work you've begun in our church. Father, we look for the day that you'll bring it to completion. Father, continue to to bless us and grace us with these gifts that you've given us, Father. Thank you for them. We will praise you forever for them. In Jesus' name, amen.